Weekly Signals, every Tuesday morning from 8 to 9 a.m. Join me, Mike Casper, and Nathan Callahan for the best in reality-based radio. That's Weekly Signals. Check out the website at weeklysignals.com. The opinions and views expressed in this program do not reflect those of KUCI, its management, or the UC Board of Regents. To find out more about this talk show or other talk shows broadcasting on KUCI, log on to our website at KUCI.org or check out the latest program guide. Good evening. You're listening to KUCI at 88.9 FM in Irvine and online at KUCI.org. Welcome to Privacy Piracy. I'm Lloyd. I'm the show's engineer, and your host is Mari Frank. Mari's a local attorney and certified information privacy professional. She's the author of several books, including Safeguard Your Identity and From Victim to Victor, a step-by-step guide for ending the nightmare of identity theft. She sits as an advisor to the State of California Office of Privacy Protection, and she's a sheriff reserve here in Orange County. She's testified many times in Congress and the California legislature on privacy and identity theft issues, and you may have seen her on TV on Dateline, 48 Hours, NBC, ABC, CNN, O'Reilly, Geraldo, Montel, a lot of other shows. And uh, she did her own 90-minute PBS special last year called Protecting Yourself in the Information Age. To learn more about this radio show and our great guests, please visit KUCI.org slash privacy piracy. Good evening, Mari. Good evening. Lloyd, remember that we met a wonderful man at the Western State University College of Law, Mark Seveny, a DA, fabulous speaker, got us all excited about what he was doing, and we said we have to meet this guy and have him come on our show, and he was so nice to say, yes, I will come on, and here he is in the studio with us. We are so thrilled. Let me tell you a little bit about my new friend, Mark Allen Seveny, who is a prosecutor of white-collar crime in Orange County, California. Right after finishing law school, Mark Seveny went to work for the Orange County District Attorney's Office back in February of 1978. Boy, we're showing how old you are. In his 30 years as prosecutor, Mark Seveny tried over 90 jury trials, including 25 homicides, 11 felony sexual assault cases, and numerous major fraud cases. He worked in almost every unit of the office, including five years in the major fraud unit in the 1980s, and then again from January 1999 until 2008. His activity in game homicide investigations and prosecutions between 1990 and 1994 helped to formulate the legal and evidentiary strategies by which gang-related homicide cases were vigorously pursued and tried in Orange County, so we thank you for that. Then from 1995 through 1997, he worked as one of the lead attorneys in the criminal investigation of the Orange County, California bankruptcy case, which everybody knew about all over the world. This included a nine-month presentation of evidence to the Orange County Grand Jury concerning the role of investment firms in the county's financial calamity. That was really horrible. This investigation eventually led to a $30 unfair business practices settlement with Merrill Lynch. 
Then after that, he served as supervising deputy district attorney in charge of law and motion for this district attorney's office. Later on, he returned to the Economic Crimes Unit in 1999 to be part of the Major Fraud and High-Tech Crimes Division. During his tenure with the office, Mr. Seveny trained fellow prosecutors in the district attorney's office and through the California District Attorney's Association on documentary evidence, identity theft, complex case preparation, and major fraud issues. Mark Seveny officially retired from the district attorney's office in February of 2008, but he is still there working as a prosecutor on a part-time basis, and in fact, when I try and reach him, he's always working. He is also an expert and consultant now to private industry and insurance companies on issues relating to fraud and computer-related crimes. We love you. You're wonderful, Mark. Thank you so much for coming into the studio. Well, thank you, Mari. It's a pleasure to be here. Well, it's so fun. A new friend, right? We had a great time doing a dog and pony show. We did. We did a a wonderful lecture at uh, Western State School of Law. Yeah, with all those attorneys, they had a good time. Let's get down to business here and find out, as a prosecutor in the Economic Crimes Unit of the Orange County District Attorney's Office for so many years, tell us about the types of cases that you routinely handled. Well, in the Economic Crimes Unit, specifically the Major Fraud and High-Tech Crimes Division, we would routinely handle uh, very complex fraud type of cases, cases involving a lot of documentary evidence, usually losses of over $100,000 or more, and typically it was much more. And that could be anywhere from your corporate embezzlements, uh, investment fraud, real estate fraud, forgery and check fraud, credit card fraud, of course, identity theft, anything that was document-intensive mm-hmm. and complex and of a high dollar value, we tended to prosecute in that unit. And we were very lucky in this county in that the district attorney's office put a lot of emphasis on prosecuting those sorts of crimes. So we had a lot of resources to work with, and we had a lot of very good police departments to work with. A lot of the police forces throughout the country, we hear of them not prosecuting many of these cases, not taking them to the DA, not even investigating. So we're really lucky that you've been doing that here. That's great. What have you seen with regard to identity theft recently? What's been going on? Well, within the last 10 years, we've seen a shift in the high volume of identity theft. I think as everyone knows who's listened to your program and read your books, there's been an exponential explosion of identity theft in California and around the world. In the old days, it used to be identity theft was based off of someone stealing your wallet, stealing your purse, getting a credit card, a check, maybe forging your name. It would be an individual sort of criminal who would do that crime. Uh, we still see that today, and uh, in fact, I, I see that a lot now when I'm, I'm over in Harbor Court working. We still see the individuals who have stolen mail. They're using that then to parlay that into stolen checks, or they uh, forge checks, print them out on the computer. Right. They make up new checks with the account number and the routing number, right? That's correct. And But what the most dramatic shift has been in terms of more sophisticated and more costly schemes perpetrated not by single individuals but by groups of people working together. We, we refer to them as crews or, or gangs, uh, although they're not criminal street gangs in the common sense, although some of their members are gang members. But because of this, they're mm-hmm. able to cause a significantly higher level of economic damage 
both to the individuals who are the victims and to the institutions they victimize. And they've gotten very sophisticated. They've gotten very fast at turning things around. The forged documents we are seeing out there now are much higher quality than they were just a few years ago. And, of course, the level of criminal activity has gone up tremendously. Tell us the story that you told, that major story about that huge crime ring in Orange County. Will you tell my audience, because we were all sitting there with our mouths open, and you showed, I wish we had video to show the pictures of all these people, and the little tiny ringleader was, what, she was 4'11", or something like that. Tell a little bit about that story. It was amazing. You're you're talking about the uh, the ring that was headed by Tina Tran in, in Orange County. And the uh, primary investigating officer in that was uh, Investigator Damon Tucker of the Orange County District Attorney's Office. Damon had come up through the ranks in the Irvine Police Department, was an outstanding investigator there, especially in the area of economic crime. And we kind of latched onto him and brought him on board uh, into our office. And Damon started putting together this case where he found that various players on the lower levels, what we call the runners, the passers, the people who actually use the stolen identities and who uh, go into the stores to buy the goods. They go in and they apply for credit in your name. Uh, And they walk out with anything from a television set to an automobile. Uh, These people were linked in many ways. And it takes a lot of work to link those people up because, again, They are in different jurisdictions. We might have a series of crimes in Costa Mesa, Newport Beach, Cerritos, L.A., uh, Newport, and all over. And what you have to do is find a common denominator. And Damon went through this thing, and he slowly built up a network, partly based on another case that he had done some years before, uh, where we found, again, this continuity between individuals working between these rings. And... What he did was he tracked all these people down, (laughs) identified as many of the runners as he could, uh, initiated surveillance on a number of these people, and basically backtracked them up the chain of command in this very complex uh, structure that this uh, Tina Tran had created in order to manage this if you will, it's an organized crime empire of identity theft. And you, I think you, I remember hearing you say that on the lower levels, they didn't know each other, but they all knew uh, Tina. Is that right? Or they knew the, the one, they knew one person, but they didn't know each other. That's correct. And, and again, this goes back to the, that dramatic shift we saw in the type of identity theft activity we've been having in the last, over the last 10 years. What they do is they literally structure their organization as you would a modern corporation, where you have certain people within the organization who have certain specific tasks, and they are under a what we would call a controller, uh, a supervisor, a lieutenant. <laughs> and yeah. that person then, who normally is not known to the underlings by their real name anyway, they provide them with the ID, they provide them with the checks, with the newly printed credit cards, They take them to the stores. They supervise their activities from the background, or sometimes they'll be standing right next to them. They're the only person in the ring that the underlings know. And the reason that's important is that the underlings are the most likely people to be busted. Right. They're the most likely people are going to get caught doing this. And if they're caught, all they're going to say is, well, my my friend Tran uh, was the one who gave me all of this. Well, who's Tran? Well, he's a five foot eight. Right. Uh, Vietnamese, 120 pounds, male, you know, right. 25 to 35. 
Well, that eliminates probably. (laughs) (laughs) We've only got 20,000 suspects at that point. (laughs) So what happens then is that the the criminals at the top have found that if you insulate yourself, you compartmentalize your organization, you impose strict security. Nobody up the line knows anyone but the person above them and the person below them. Mm -hmm. You can pretty much... Uh, you're immune. Yeah, insulated, yeah. You're, you are completely immune from prosecution. Right. And what Damon did in this case is he just carefully went up the line. He identified various players. Uh, within this organization, for instance, you have people who never go in at all or never even supervise someone below them. What they do is their whole job is they are given information from uh, the core players. They are the ones who make the identities uh, they make the, the false California driver's licenses, which is an art in itself, but can right. be done with a modern computer, a laminator, and a printer, uh, and uh, a magnetic strip card reader. Um, they are completely separate, then, from the people actually going out and doing the other aspects of the crime. Hmm. You have people whose sole job it is to obtain uh, information. Like the social security number, et cetera, yeah. Yeah, driver's licenses. Uh-huh. Uh, and then they will go out, and they will deal strictly with people who their only role in the organization is to provide that information, either by uh, means of stealing mail, still a very common uh, sort of way of getting this information, uh-huh. but also they work in various industries which legitimately keep your identity information. Right. And that's another thing that we're finding now that I think is much more common than it was 10 years ago. Yeah, you, you, one of the guys was with Ditech, right? Wasn't that right? That one you was with Ditech. Another one was with another online mortgage firm. Right. And, and, and the mortgage companies have everything about you. Everything. Everything. Yeah. Because, well, anyone in your audience who's ever filled out a loan application, oh, yeah. especially on a real estate loan, they've got everything they need to go out there. Uh, if you go in to uh, fill out an application for medical insurance, They'll have your social security number. That's the first thing they ask for. Right, right. And then they ask for your address and your telephone number. And what people can do with this information, they they literally go in, and in in the case of Ditech, and that was an individual who worked in the Tina Tran organization, is she would go into the computers and fish for old applications that had gone through. Uh, they they, They were closed files, if you will. And at that point... You mean he would steal the old files, not the new files, so that no one would know about it, right? That's right. They they put some distance between them and the time the information was given in the hopes that that would reduce the ability of authorities to back check right, it all. Right, right. The other thing you Now, s- was it electronic files that he took, or was it hard copy files that he stole? In that case, uh, the, the two primary individuals stole both, but again... It was mostly electronic files. Uh But what did they have? They have PDFs, uh, Adobe Acrobat documents in these computers. So Uh they can pull up the original document that's been scanned in. Uh They have your loan application, and they have what we used to call in the old days the TRW. Right, yeah, your credit credit reports, right. And on that, they can find your credit score. And Mm. this gang was so particular that they only wanted, they only bought credit profiles. What we call a credit profile is when you have all of that sure, information. Sure, with the score and everything, right. Mm-hmm. Of people who had a credit profile of over 700. Right, because then they knew could, they could get anything. They knew they could go anywhere and get anything. Uh, and they also and knew... And so th- these companies were not encrypting this information, obviously, and they were letting anyone have access. That's absolutely correct. Ah! 
Now, with in a lot of companies, you do have seg you, you do have some protection within firewalls or structures within companies that will prevent just any employee from accessing it. But the particular job descriptions these people had would have given them access even if uh -huh. those things had been in place. So these people go in specifically and try and get those jobs because they will have access. In a lot of cases, that is correct. Yeah. Or there are people who wind up having problems in their personal life. They have a gambling problem, a drug problem, uh, the economy alimony. all of a sudden goes over. Yeah, they get a divorce, and, whatever. And yeah. they find that they're in need of money. Yes. They have access to this. And they like sit around with store. their friends who yeah. say, well, I know someone who would pay you for right. this information. Right. And that's a lot of how it comes down. And typically your information will go, uh, a, a good credit profile will go anywhere from 200 to $400 without any work on the part of the person providing it except to get that documentation mm -hmm. to the person who will then transmit it to the gang. Right. You know, we had a, an identity thief on our show, I think a couple of years ago, Ron Hemphill, who, a reformed, I take it back, a reformed one, but he told us how he got caught. What he would do, and he has a security business right now, but what he would do is he would actually go into credit bureaus and go into banks, and he would pay the top people, managers, $10,000 for, you know, a whole list. And the, he also said yeah, they had to have at least 700 credit score. And and that's what he would do. He would pay $10,000 at a crack to get mm -hmm. all this stuff. It's a lot of money, but he would get hundreds of names at once. Well, this, this particular ring we know uh, had access to several hundred people's credit profiles, and we estimate conservatively that they caused a loss in the two to three years they were in active operation of over a million dollars. Wow. Uh, mostly the purchase of electronic goods and other things that would then be sold to fences uh, for cash. Mm. Uh, could obtain automobiles, uh, just anything you can think of. Um, so, Mark, tell me, how many do you know how many victims were involved from in those two years in, in Orange County? We know that there I would I would guess just based on on what we <laughs> recovered and right. we were very fortunate we recovered virtually the whole operation wow. uh, over 250 victims mm. and that's conservative right right because uh, you might not even know who all the victims were that's correct and eventually that led to the arrests of over two dozen people I think 26 or 27 were in custody including Miss Tran yes uh, and I love it what was her prior uh, Profession. Well, Miss Tran <laughs> uh, was a madam who who ran a bordello. Well, that's where she got her management experience. You were saying, right? I'm sure it was. <laughs> yes, um, she certainly is a, is a people person, if you know what I mean. Uh, and uh, her crew was uh, was fairly loyal to her too. And of course, yes. very few people knew within the organization knew that she was ahead of it. Only the core group that surrounded her knew that. Mm -hmm. So five or six people, maybe. She could have started some really great, profitable business if it was legitimate and done well. Uh, she could have, but, you know, there's uh, <laughs> some people just don't like the 9 to 5 routine. Uh, <laughs> the fact you only get 10% profit for, you know, your, your total receipts. Right. Uh, and Crime so, pays, right? <laughs> yeah, crime pays. And, and that's why we see people going into this is that uh, we, we have been very fortunate in this state. We have made it very punitive for people to use firearms, for people to use guns. And I, uh, one of the things I always say is only stupid people steal with guns uh, because the likelihood of you being caught is less in this sort of crime. In, in identity theft rather in identity than using theft, a gun, yes. 
And the penalties which you face, yeah. supposing you are caught, is much less. Yes. And it's much more difficult to prosecute you successfully. Uh, and, and so this is one of the, th- one of the challenges as we face uh, in, in the DA's office in the Economic Crimes Unit is successfully prosecuting these cases. Many of the crimes, uh, for instance, a person may live and reside in Orange County. Right. Their identity may be stolen from a repository of data in a bank in San Francisco. Right. It may be sold to someone who then uses it to buy a computer system out of New Jersey. Right. Okay, where'd the crime occur? Right. And who's going to prosecute it? Are we going to fly someone out from New Jersey? Are right. we going to get those records? How are we going to do this? Uh, and if it's a local company? And, and the crooks, they sense this. Right. So that's one of the, the things that we've been working on in law enforcement is to try to effectively find means of prosecuting these crimes across jurisdictional lines. Mm-hmm. So that, that remains a significant challenge. Right. We're speaking here right in our studio with Mark Seveny, who has been a prosecutor for 30 years. He doesn't look it, though. He's got a young-looking face looking at him right here. He's a wonderful guy, and he just has joined us, and he knows exactly what he's talking about, and he has been a great help to all of us here in Orange County, keeping us safe. So we were just talking about how now you can, you know, get the information in one state, use it in another state, transfer it to another state, so or even out of the country. So what is the effect of the information age on this crime and what's happening? Well, it, it has several dimensions to it. One is, of course, it's easier to obtain and to disseminate identity information uh, from both legitimate and illegitimate sources. Uh, as you know, if you go online, you can type in someone's name into a search engine and bring up where they live, sometimes where they work. Their phone number. Their phone number. Uh, we have, uh, because credit is so important now, there are companies that have access to other companies whose only purpose in life is to gather that information. And it's legitimately there, and it's there Information for brokers, right. But if you have, as what happened a few years ago, uh, people setting up bogus companies, paying their dues to the legitimate companies, and then farming for that information when they get a hit on somebody they want to. You know, I get someone. Yeah, like Choice Blade had happened, yeah, yeah in 2005, exactly. right. Um, so we've seen this tremendous explosion in the access of information based on computer networks, based on computer systems. The other thing you have is on the flip side, a lot of our transactions today are anonymous. If I, even if I hand a credit card to a clerk in a store, she uh, puts it through a machine that goes through the telephone lines to a database that says either this is a good credit card or it's not a right, good credit right. card. Uh, and then I can go online. I can order goods uh, in one state. I can order them from California. Uh, to give you a personal example, I ordered something from a reputable company in Cal- uh, that was nationwide. I ordered it from their catalog in California. Two days later, I get a call from uh, my credit card uh, people back in New York who are calling me to ask me if I just purchased $5,000 worth of computer equipment in Toronto, Canada. Oh, no. Oh, which, no. of course, I didn't. Uh, <laughs> but... <laughs> But luckily, they caught on to it because right. it was an unusual transaction. They're getting better at that now. I won't say that's they're perfect. That's their neural network. They're, they're starting to pick up on little red flags out there. Mm-hmm. But because of that, uh, you can go around the world using credit cards uh, or other sorts of information to either obtain credit, 
obtain goods and services using stolen information. And so the field of victims now has become much larger, not only from the standpoint of the person having their information stolen, right. but in terms of the vendors. It's not just local merchants. anymore. That's correct. Now it can be anywhere in the world. I mean, we, we hear about these uh, Russian mafia, you know, or, or the Chinese nationals the Ch over there stealing information. Did you ever come across that in any of the foreign nationals doing this in Orange County? Most of, of what we have is homegrown here in terms of the actual theft of the, of the information, okay. or it's certainly within the United States. But uh, very often uh, you'll get a, a bulletin from federal law enforcement talking about something like that. Mm -hmm. And it's well known that if you uh, deal overseas, you have to be especially careful. Um, I've dealt with companies in Russia and Eastern Europe uh, uh, on a basis for several years. I've always known the people I've been dealing with. I've never had a problem. Right. Uh, but it can happen to anyone. Right. And all it takes is an employee of a company who is, uh, you know, not ethically minded mm -hmm. to to cause a problem for that company. Right. Even if the company is otherwise legitimate. Exactly. And, and that's mostly what we're seeing even in, in this country now. The other thing about it is that in the old days, whereas a lot of it was dumpster diving and people going, uh, you know, stealing information out of the cars. It's still done, by the way. Right. Uh, today, we're seeing a greater use of going into the institutions that have our information and extracting it from them without their permission. Right. And that information is finding its way onto the street. Right. We're talking about security breaches that we see, large security breaches, big holes. You know, I know we had this guy who's actually going to be on your panel, we, um, Brian, Byron Akohito, who was on our show, and he mm -hmm. wrote this book, Zero Day Threat, and he talked to us about um, his investigations as a journalist into how these major, major uh, organizations, criminal organizations, are getting into portals and stealing information other parts of the world now, too. So it that's beyond our control, though, isn't it, Mark? It, it is, and, and uh, we can talk about this a little later, what, what people can do to, to try to minimize right. their exposure or to minimize the, uh, the effect of what happens afterwards. Right. Uh, which really is what you're talking about. Yeah, um, because you can't really prevent it. Like, you couldn't prevent what happened to you just, you know, when you made that order no. that, that somebody took your credit card. Now, that must have been an unscrupulous employee, too, who had access to your credit card number. That's one way it could have happened, right? I mean, wouldn't you guess that that might be one way? I would say that the likelihood is that that's exactly what happened. Yeah. Uh, it's uh, unusual that someone would have hacked into their system from the outside, it's unusual that someone would have been able to interfere or obtain that information except by having access to their own communication system within their company. Yeah, you said a, a very high percentage of unscrupulous employees were really causing identity, identity theft. What percentage do you think that is? Well, this is, this is interesting because, and again, I speak from my experience as a prosecutor having reviewed thousands of police reports and looking at the crimes as they've been committed that we've discovered. And my estimate has always been that approximately 60 to 66 percent wow. of identity theft, uh, at least successful identity theft, has been caused by people working within these organizations that legitimately have your information right. that then leak it out for money. Right. They basically steal it 
and and that's what they do. Now, interest. Why, why I say this is interesting is that uh, companies that do statistical analysis say it's the exact opposite. That in point of fact, they f- they feel that there's a much smaller percentage of internal theft of information. That most of it is done. Uh, through theft of mail, dumpster diving, as we call it. Uh, well, they don't want to admit what's really going on because that kind of puts them at at odds with their boards. And, you know, I mean, it really puts – they would rather blame it on someone else than really looking within and being careful. That's my experience. I would like to see what their databases wh- – where they're obtaining their information because, obviously, I'm looking at it from the standpoint of the people who are complaining, the people we are actually catching – Right. Now, it could be there's a lot of people out there we're not catching simply because they're not successful. Uh, and that may be part of the skewing of it. But I think uh, one of the things that we have to address now is the, I hate to word, use the word liability because it has legal consequences, but I think just the moral responsibility of companies that have this information, and of course we're moving in that direction. You see laws about encryption, you see companies going to encryption, uh, you see them becoming more restrictive in their personnel in terms of who has and who doesn't have that information. But even so, uh, when you look at who the primary companies are that are getting hit with, let's say, credit card fraud and ID theft, two of our major banks are at the top of the list Exactly, exactly. And I think that speaks to uh, something going on. They need to be more careful in in their hiring and their employment of people. Mm-hmm. And and their monitoring of people. Yes, once they're inside. You know, because you know somebody could be have a a clean background. You do a background check on them, and then maybe they start getting they get involved in alcoholism or gambling or any of the things that you were talking about before. And it's such an easy crime that they get, they fall for it. It's not like you have to injure somebody to do it. Well, for instance, uh, and we won't name the financial institution, but uh, in one well-known national bank, and this is an example of, of uh, that computerized information and database that somebody has legitimately on you that, right. that then somehow falls into the wrong hands. Mm-hmm. There was a customer service representative uh, who would sit at his desk, and, of course, he would take customer complaints or customer inquiries over the phone. But when he wasn't doing that, uh, he would sometimes search for accounts that had high balances Mm -hmm. or that had last names that would be similar to the types of people that they would be using in the field. Mm -hmm. Uh, And he would very neatly write down all of the information from that person's account off of his screen because the company made the effort to make sure that no one could actually print off that information. Oh, so he had to do it by hand. He had to do it by hand. He And this company also had in place uh, a system whereby anyone who opened up that account internally to look at it, that was logged in. So there was like an audit trail to audit see who trail. was there. So they at least had done that. Yeah, that's good. But you're you're talking about a company that has probably a million hits a day in terms of of people legitimately looking at information in that company. So there's a lot of data going in and out of that company legitimately. But what he would do is he would write down, and and he did this the same way on each form in immaculate handwriting. (laughs) He wrote down the person's name their spouse's name, if there was a spouse on the account. He wrote down the bank account number when it was opened. 
if it was linked to credit cards, what those credit card numbers were, what the expiration date of the credit card numbers were, the social security numbers of the people, <sighs> the uh, the address of the people, the telephone numbers that were given for those people, and the balance in the accounts. Oh, my gosh. And he did that for over 440 people. And we were investigating the fellow that he was actually selling this information to. In fact, he did more than just sell it. He would take that information home, download it to his computer, again, in a very neat <laughs> spreadsheet sort of way, Okay, he's organized. Um, he was criminals. very organized. <laughs> he, he, he was very uh, pristine in how he did this. He then had a computer and a printer that was, and programs for creating California driver's licenses. Ah. He had a laminator so that he could then laminate the driver's licenses. He had the machinery to make phony credit cards, including the embossing of the numbers. And what he would do is he would then create phony IDs and the names of the people whose identities he'd stolen once he got the photos from the man he was, quote, working for. Mm. And he'd create the phony documents to go with it. Mm. And sometimes all he would do is they would take this, they would go into that bank, and they would open a new account in the name of the person. Right. And they'd then link a credit card to it. And then what they would do is, because he had all the information at his fingertips, he would transfer money from the legitimate account Oh to the phony gosh. new account, it would be Brilliant. taken out immediately, and they'd disappear into the night. So w they'd go to a different branch? Would it be in a different state, or would it just no, be in a different area of the county? Different city. And there was no, and they did nothing to link that or anything? Well, it, it looks completely legitimate. Yeah, because they had everything. You have your customer coming in. He's got his this driver's license. This is my license. spouse's name. They yeah. could say everything. In, in one case, as a matter of fact, uh, with the other ring, they used to go in as a husband and wife team. <laughs> right, right. And Both so of them opened up accounts. Right, and <laughs> it, it looked completely legitimate. And what happened in this case was uh, we had had an informant who had infiltrated this group of individuals, did not know this person at all, but had talked to the head of the group. And due to the, uh, the DAs, at that time it was the uh, regional Asian gang enforcement team, uh, we had voluminous tapes and videos of the leader of the group sitting with our informant talking about how they were going to commit these crimes. Oh, my goodness. But we had no idea where this person was <laughs> that was doing all the work. You didn't know what bank they were in or anything? We had no idea of the bank. Well, we knew, we knew at least for one of the schemes, we knew what bank was going to be used. Mm -hmm. But we had no idea where the individual was who was the employee. The right, 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 right. And as it happened, uh, the operation, as we say, went south a little bit in that we lost control of what was happening in it, and we decided we're going to stop this right now and move in on, on the bad guys. And the Did end you result, lose your informant? We didn't lose the informant, but what happened was he lost all of the he lost control over the documents ah. that were being used by this group in this in a particular uh, Criminal yeah, scheme. Yeah. And we decided we had to move quickly because we didn't want them using those documents. Right. And they followed the main guy to a house in, in Garden Grove, a nondescript house. Mm -hmm. And the guy goes inside. The officers go up, knock on the door, because it's not his house. We know that. And this sweet little lady comes to the door, and they say, did Mr. So-and-so so come in? And they show her a picture and says, oh, yeah, he's in my son's bedroom. So they go up to the bedroom, knock on the door. It's locked. Uh, 
and they announce themselves as police officers, and they hear a shredder go on. <laughs> and everybody knows what a shredder yeah. sounds like. Yeah, right, on. right, right. So they, they kick the door, and they walk in, and here is this guy with his total setup in a room about the size of this studio, which is probably about 10 by 12. Uh-huh. He's got it all there. Oh, my gosh. And... Still live with mom. Oh, no, he wasn't living with mom. He was a... Well, he was, yeah, he was living with mom. Oh, that's who he was living with, his mom. He was mom. living with his mother. And I, his mother didn't even know what was going on? She had no idea. Oh, you know, she God. She's Poor old thing. world. Yeah. You know. She, my son's techie. <laughs> right. She, she's lucky if she knows a computer from a toaster. Right, right. Uh, sweet lady, but no yeah. clue as to what her son was doing. We found stacks of this information on company forms. Mm. We found it in his computer, occasionally with notations as to who he sold that information to, because he had to keep records right. for his boss. And he was so organized. And he was so organized. <laughs> we found uh, credit cards and half-made driver's licenses. And uh, he and the boss were both there, and they both went to prison. Wow. For how long? Well, uh, they paid $250,000 cash restitution mm. to the company which they had stolen the information from. Good. And because of that, uh, they got a little bit of a break in their sentence. But mind you, the the underling, uh, the, the man who had stolen the information, it didn't have a criminal record. He got five years state prison. Yeah. And the higher up got nine. So it was a very successful case from our standpoint. It was. Uh, but again... In, in some ways, we lucked out. In other ways, we were kind of on to what was going on, but we really didn't know the extent of it. Exactly. Uh, but again, this database was, was accessed despite attempts by the company to prevent it. Right. Um, so. Yeah, so the audit trail didn't really work for them because everybody at that level had access. But they, I guess the only other answer, which I hate to say as a privacy advocate, is say having surveillance. You know, surveillance, surveillance tapes would show if they're writing something down. If they're not supposed to write something down. But in this case, he was writing it on a company form. Oh, so and they don't know what they're writing. Desk yeah, they don't have know. noticed anything. Right. And, and in a way, the audit trail did work. And I encourage companies to establish them uh, when they have sensitive information. Uh, and a, a fact I didn't tell you is that before we busted him, the company he worked for had fired him. Oh, they did. And they had fired him based on our complaint, our inquiries that there was someone in their company leaking information. We gave them some names, oh. and they knew who it was. But they so didn't they communi- went and they searched their audit trails, yes. and they could see what was going on. But they didn't communicate that to us. Right. And why do you think that is? Well, because the last thing you want to see if you're a Fortune 500 company <laughs> is your name on the front of the financial section of the newspaper right. indicating that an employee has compromised sensitive data in your possession, right. <laughs> financial right. data. Right. Uh, a couple of bad things happen at that point. Number one, your stock is probably going to fall. Yes. You're going to have people who will be withdrawing money uh, from yeah. accounts, especially right. when it's obvious that the accounts being hit are accounts that have high cash, high balances in them. Exactly. Uh, it looks bad to your shareholders. Uh, it, it's just not a good thing to have happen to you as a business. Right. So Let me they, ask you something. I heard so many times from investigators inside of bu- businesses, and especially financial industry, that they are not, they're told not to 
focus too hard on the resolution because they the company's already lost money and they don't want to spend a fortune on fraud that's already the money's lost. Have you found that to be the case in terms of inside investigators not being able to help you as much as you needed the help? The short answer is yes. Mm-hmm. Uh, there's a lot of reasons for that. And a lot of those investigators really want to help us. A lot yes. of them go out of their way to help us. Right. Uh, many of them are ex-police officers, and it galls them to have <laughs> anyone in their organization either stealing from them or whatnot. The other thing, too, is that many times in the investigation, we don't know when we start, if the leak is internal or if it was some sort of an external uh, coincidence that, you know, 50 people all have had identity theft in our area, and they've all been customers at this bank. Right. As odd as it sounds, that could be a coincidence. Right. But what happens is, uh, and this is true not only in in private industry, this is true if you're dealing with, let's say, uh, the social services department, the welfare departments. Look what happened to the VA. Right. So, yeah. They they don't want to have their dirty laundry aired. Right. They've taken care of the problem. They've they've paid for it. Now the end result is, of course, they pass that on to the thousands and hundreds consumers, of thousands of right. customers that they have. Right. But they try to minimize the impact to the individual person who was victimized as much as they can. Now they may. Some are better at that than others. Mm-hmm. Uh, I recently dealt with a case uh, outside of the office where the bank acknowledged, well, after this point, yeah, we'll cover your losses after that point, but before that, we're not going to cover it. Right. And there was no real logic as to why. I I would have thought it would have been the other way around. Uh, But it means $50,000 to this lady who who had her identity stolen. Uh, And that was an instance where someone outside the organization actually got into her apartment, stole her checks. Oh, yeah. And she... But they didn't lady. even really need the checks. All they needed was the account number and the routing yeah. number. But this is an elderly lady who uh, didn't really keep track of things, and so it took her months to realize that someone had literally ripped off her uh, uh, household line of credit right. for upwards of $100,000. Right. Oh, dear. And so uh, she's having a little bit of a problem right now yeah. with the bank. But, Never call me. But I don't. <laughs> I, I, I hope that that is not the norm. I hope that's well, the exception. Well, we hear a lot of that, though. We do. We hear a lot of that. Or we hear, you know, of, of electronic funds transfers where, similar to what you're talking about, you know, someone will go in. I'll have a little old lady who has never used electronic funds transfers. She doesn't use online banking. And then suddenly she finds out that, you know, $20,000 is gone. Mm-hmm. That happens. And that's and, you know, and those are typical victims because uh, if they don't use online banking, if they if they're not electronically hooked up into the system to where they can immediately find out what's going right. on in their accounts, they generally don't find out for at least thirty days. Right, and then you know those statements aren't so easy to read either, and so they they aren't clear about what they're looking at, or you know a lot of people don't look at their statements, and that's another thing. So. Yeah, I think I think the the younger people who are online, like you're talking about, and they're watching it, they'll see it quicker than some of the elderly people. And the problem is, is that with electronic funds transfer, you have to tell them in two days you're going to lose five hundred dollars. That's correct. And then if you don't tell them within sixty days, you lose everything. And then just to get it back, 
Meanwhile, all your checks are bouncing and everything else, automatic payments are causing a problem. And then you've got problems with everybody yelling at you, we didn't get paid, we didn't get paid. So it's a, it's a horror. The us. hardship on an identity theft victim is not just the money. And I, I try to stress this. Oh, in yeah. most of our economic crimes, the money, it's a horrible thing to lose money. But you lose more than that. You lose uh, your credit rating. Uh, some people, even when they're <laughs> when it's fixed, uh, we had one gal who had a car bought uh, by a member of the Tina Tran ring. They drove they drove it off. Uh, she got it all squared away with the bank eventually. Her credit score dropped a hundred points. Yes. So then she can't buy a car. Well, it's a lot more expensive for her. She yes. can buy the car, yeah. but the interest rate's going to go up. Right. And they have yet to be able to fix this for her. Mm. Uh, a man recently in Colorado had to sue the credit reporting companies as well as the credit card companies to get rid of uh, all the fraud the, on the all on the, the fraud on the account. Right. Even though they they readily admitted that it was fraud, right. it was just a matter of well we'll get to it when we get to it, and it was it was killing them. Right. You know, I just had we had a couple on our show a few weeks ago who I who I helped out of Vermont, and um, these poor young couple with two kids who were disabled it, it was a sad story they were victims of identity theft when with a when a bank actually sent sensitive information to a guy with a similar name in a different state and so he had everything and he stole their identity so they got it all cleaned up and i had been helping them and she gets, sends me an email this past week that now menards who had been one of the um victims that went after her, you know, they lost money. They got restitution from the judge. She didn't. And now Menards had sold it to collections, and the collection companies were after her for the money that Menards lost that they already got restitution for. So anyway, I'm helping her, and we're going to get her on TV again. She was already on TV because this kind of stuff happens to you all the time. It happens to you all the time that, that the victim gets re-victimized First, they're victimized by the bad guy. Then they get re-victimized by the collection companies. It's, it goes on and on. And they often don't know where to turn. And so that's why I think, uh, you know, your books and what you've provided uh, with, with your firm is, is so important to the consumer. Yeah. Because it's really so much cheaper. Yeah. I mean, all they need is my book, and that's got the CD with the legal letters. That's the problem. You know what the real problem is? As a DA, you, you're trying to help the, vic you know, the victims by getting the bad guy. But even your victim assistant program can't write all the letters for them. Can't you know? They can talk to them. They could talk to them about restitution, but they can't do all the work. And under the Fair Credit Reporting Act, there's such a huge burden for victims that they have to write myriad letters. Well, I believe you asked me once what the likelihood of getting restitution is yeah. if you're a victim. <laughs> yeah. Uh, if if a financial institution's involved, they may zero out your account. They may make you whole from that standpoint. You're going to be out dozens, if not hundreds, of hours trying to correct your credit. Right. Uh, the other problem is that uh, the, the overall cost of, of, of aggravation, emotional distress, is going to be tremendous to these people because you're trying to regain your credit, and you're going to be getting notices uh, your checks will bounce out of your accounts, mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. so it's, yeah. And it's, you can't get you can't get emotional distress damages for restitution. You can right. You can only get your out of pocket correct. costs when you go to the judge. And the fact of the matter is, that people who have stolen your money probably don't have any money to pay restitution right. and are not likely to have any money unless they steal it from someone else. 
So in terms of us actually extracting it from the bad guys, it's, it's not going to happen. So right. we're basically here to separate them from their victims as long or their future victims for as long as possible because my experience is they will go back out there, and if they are professionals, they'll re-engage in the same activity all over again. Yeah, yeah. You know, I, my my own identity was stolen back in 1996, back in... Um, by a woman who I never met, but she had been married to a Ventura cop, and her dad was a cop, you know, retired cop, and she knew, you know, how to play the game. She was a methamphetamine addict, which is typical, right? That's very typical. Yes, and she was not just doing this to me. She was doing this to other people. She was downloading their credit reports in the law office that she was working as, and, um, you know, she, while she was out on bail, Mark, she was still getting pre-approved offers in my name and, and accepting them. And she, even after she was out on bail, she continued to apply for more. Only this time she applied with supposedly a boyfriend with joint accounts with, with my Social Security number. So you're right. They go after it over and over again. And I think you wanted to talk about the fact that methamphetamine and identity theft go together like a horse and carriage. Why don't you do that? Because she was one of those. I'm sure you saw my expression. Uh, <laughs> we call them tweakers. Tweakers. Because the the effect of methamphetamine on them physically tends to make them tweak. They oh. twitch, and, and they're very jerky. Oh. Uh, they also uh, never sleep. Uh, so, But you'd, you'd think they sit around in coffee houses or something talking to each other about these schemes because it is so common for us to find methamphetamine users in possession of stolen identities, stolen information, forged checks, and it's the way they finance their habit, probably more than any other uh, type of drug user, we find them involved in identity theft, white-collar crime, uh, credit card, and uh, basically counterfeit check writing. And now mm -hmm. they're actually counterfeiting currency now as well. Uh, mm -hmm. we've, we've got a lot of that. Really? Huh. So. Are tweakers, but they're the people who are sitting over in the Motel Six with a, you know, a, a batch of chemicals, washing checks, as we call it, to get the ink off of them so they can then reuse the check. Right. Uh, but they're very much into this. We had a lady on our show. Actually, I met her. She was on Motel with me last October, and she was a meth, an exit methamphetamine addict who had kids and was divorced, the typical kind of profile, you know, just like my methamphetamine addict that did this to me. And she told us that they would actually take entire mailboxes that you see on the corner in the middle of the night, and they're up, and they're taking stuff out of, of the mailboxes. And then she went to Office Depot or Office Max and would create new checks. She wouldn't even bother to acid wash them, she said. She would just take new checks and create new checks. With any name on it, and and that's how she got her money two hundred thousand in a year just from that. Well, the gentleman uh, who uh, I'm trying to remember his name right now, uh, he was the subject to the movie Catch Me If You Can. Right, Frank Abagnale. Frank is now also a, a consultant in this area after having worked for the FBI for many many years, and I, I still remember a comment he made once in one of his presentations in that we have made it easy. In the old days, check paper was a special type of paper. All the checks were printed with hard ink. You couldn't get it off. In order for you to professionally replicate a check, it was very, very difficult. Today, anybody with an HP or uh, a Canon printer on their home computer can go to Staples, buy check paper, 
and, and yeah. duplicate a check. And, and the banks don't even look at it because I have a check from one of my victims, and I swear to you, Mark, it says Mickey Mouse. Instead <laughs> of the person's name like Tom Jones, it says Mickey Mouse, Disneyland USA. And then the real bank was something like Countrywide, in it, but it said Bank of America. So nothing matched except the checking account number and the routing number. And I think the person must have been a meth addict thinking, let's just show how stupid they are. And the, the check was cash. Just that said Mickey Mouse on it. So it doesn't matter. They don't look at the checks. Not at all. Not at all. No. It, it is strictly that routing number and, and the account number. Uh, and I've seen inadvertently where a routing number and a, an account number have been misread on a check by uh-huh. a computer. And they wind up going through somebody else's account. Huh. And that was that was not from a criminal agency. That was right. just that was just a negligence. Yeah, yeah, and yeah, an happen, error. Again, the names on it were different. The, the addresses, and, and the only reason it got caught was that it, the, the check came in the person's uh, account statement with the check itself, and they're looking at it. This isn't one of my checks. Well, see, you don't even get your checks back anymore, Mark. So if you're doing online banking, you can pull up the check. You know, that's the good thing about doing online banking is you can pull up the check and say, gee, I don't remember who that check was written to. And you pull it up and then you say, oh, yeah, I remember who that is. Yeah. Well, I'm, I know some people are very leery about online banking. And I think, once again, you have to be very careful in who you deal with, who you give your information to. Uh, but I'm a, I'm a big fan of online banking simply because of the quick turnaround yes. in information. Uh, you, if you go on and you check your, your account every day, every other day, if something is there that shouldn't be there, then you should be able to see that. And that's exactly. true whether it's a savings account, checking account, or a credit card account. Right. And so I, I'm actually an advocate of that in terms of when people ask me, what can we do to prevent this? Well, you can't prevent it by, by going online. But what you can do is you can stop these people short and hopefully if it's uh, like a credit application or, or a, a, a card or a, an order of some sort, you can prevent that from going through or you can see to it that these people are caught. Right. I mean, you can do early intervention at least. That's correct. And But then you have to remember to have your you know, password be multiple letters and numbers and characters and have, you know, make sure that you have anti-spyware on your computer, a router, and, and, you know, antivirus, because that's, you know, if somebody comes in with key logging software, they can take that away from you, even if you have a long uh, password. One of the, the things that I know a lot of victims are having a great deal of trouble with, and that we're trying to address in this state, is the response of law enforcement mm-hmm. to identity theft. In this state now, we have statutes in place that require a police department if you live in their jurisdiction and you have been the victim of identity theft, you have a right to file a police report. And get one. And get one. <laughs> yeah. And, in fact, it's very important you get one if Absolutely. you're going to be dealing with these credit companies. But this is a new development. In the old days, if you called up a police report and said, a police department and said, uh, I had my, my information stolen and used in Des Moines, they'll say, well, Talk to the Des Moines Police Department. Right. And then the Des Moines Police Department doesn't want to deal with you because you're, you're out of their jurisdiction. Absolutely. Yeah. And so it was tremendously frustrating for people. Uh, and so today we're, we're moving, once again, the, the law and, and any institution, governmental or, or economic, whether it's the banks or law enforcement, it moves gradually towards resolving problems that suddenly seem to spring up overnight or that are not in the norm. 
we're, we're good at catching people and putting them in jail. We don't really have the resources to get restitution for most of these people. Right, right. So they have to turn to the institutions uh, to, to get restitution. But just trying to prosecute these cases effectively across state lines or across county lines mm-hmm. or between cities right. uh, takes uh, some dedication on the part of, of law enforcement on the part of prosecutors. Lloyd is saying we only have three minutes left. Yeah, and I want to mention, though, that, you know, law enforcement cleans up the mess. They are not in a position to prevent it. So I really honor you for taking on all that work that you do because it's really the companies in the financial industry that are in the position to really be proactive. But you get it after it already happened, and you get hundreds of cases a year. So it's it's not something that we can blame law enforcement and prosecutors for. It, it has to change in terms of prevention. Well, thank you very much, Mari. Because that is really the truth. And, you know, hopefully we can work with industry to, to streamline the system so that we can effectively identify these people and prosecute them. Uh, it's just, it, it's different. It, it, it's yeah. a more challenging venue than, let's say, uh, a bank robbery or, or a right. home burglary. Right. And Lloyd says, uh, two more minutes. So I just want to say that the good news is, is that as of November 1st, 2008, there are these new red flag rules that are supposed to be taken seriously by all of the financial industry. And that means that they will really look beforehand before issuing a new credit card and authenticate who they're working with and make sure that if somebody applies for credit at a new address that's not on the credit report, instead of just issuing the credit like candy, they're going to have to investigate to see, yes, have you moved or is there some reason why the address is not correct? And if they can't figure it out, they won't issue the credit. So that's the good news that some good things are happening, I think, that should make your lives easier. But do you want to just leave us with anything, any words of wisdom about protecting ourselves in the information age? Well, I I think a lot of what you've already published and said on your programs uh, covers that. All I can say is that you have to be diligent in following up your own finances and in making people do the right thing if, if you find that your credit has been compromised, that your identity has been compromised. And that's all you can do. Yeah. quickly and expeditiously follow up on it. Well, we thank you so much. much. We thank you so much, Mark Seventy, for coming in. And you are a wonderful prosecutor. We appreciate all the years of hard work. And we're excited about the fact that you're still working for the DA, but that now you're even expanding your scope of influence to, to the greater world. And we thank you so much for joining us. Well, thank you, Mari. It's been uh, it's been a pleasure being here. Okay, it's fun. My new friend. You've been listening to KUCI 88.9 FM in Irvine and KUCI.org on the net. Join us every Wednesday from 5 to 6 p.m. right here. And also visit our website at KUCI.org slash privacy piracy where you can see our upcoming guests, download podcasts, listen to our archived interviews, and write us notes about what you want to hear about. Thank you so much, and thank you, Lloyd, and thank you, Mark. Stay private. Good night. The opinions and views expressed in this program do not reflect those of KUCI, its management, or the UC Board of Regents.